All right, let's talk tonight about uh, these particular subjects. The call of the apostles. And what I want to do is I think you all got a copy, at least I hope you did, of this particular handout for this evening. We're going to group them. We're going to regroup them in this order because it's easier to talk about them in groups rather than on the individual um, places that they are in the Bible. The call of Simon. Simon, of course, as we know, is later his name was changed to Peter. Simon and Andrew were brothers, as were James and John. And as I mentioned just a little while ago, there were two James. To tell the difference between one and the other, they used to call one James the Greater and one the other one James the Lesser. Um, not that they were more important than one or the other, but James and John, the brothers, uh, were just a little more prominently talked about in the various Gospels, in the four Gospels. We know virtually nothing about James the Less, okay? Except that he was also a father of one of the other apostles. So you have Two sets of brothers, and a father and a son, and perhaps a third set of brothers, but we're not certain of that, and it's really not important. What we want to talk about tonight is the apostles and how they were chosen, and the fact that when each of these were called according to the way it is written down here, it sounds as if they just saw Jesus for the first time, they listened to him, they were so enthralled, but and they just dropped everything and left and followed him. Well, I don't think that's exactly the way it happened. Because when we go back to the latter section of this same um, subject, <clears throat> When we go back to uh, page 43, the mission of the 12. If you'll all go back to that one for a minute. It says, in those days he departed to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer. When day came, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12 whom he named apostles. The word apostle means one who is sent. It is a Greek word, but it comes from a Hebrew translation. So you have something gets lost in translation, of course. You go from the Aramaic or the Hebrew to the Greek, to the Latin, and to the English. All right, but technically the word apostle means one who is sent. And in this case, it means one who is sent by Christ. And so we have Simon, whom he named Peter, and his brother Andrew, James and John, who were also brothers, Philip, Bartholomew, who was sometimes called Jude, Matthew, Thomas, James, the other James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, not to be um, uh, confused with Simon Peter, and Judas, the son of James. So there we have another um, father and son relationship. And Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Okay. Now, if you think about it, this says that the disciples were followers of Christ, and then after a time period, then Christ picked out 12 of those people and sort of elevated them to apostles. 
So when you go back and you read the previous story at the beginning of chapter 5, it makes a little more sense because these fellows, Peter, James, and John, knew who Christ was before they were chosen to be apostles. So they were obviously disciples sometime first. And that makes sense. If you have a dynamic speaker come to town, everybody talks about them. You know, in the years, in the days long ago when a great preacher would come to town and set up a tent and have a revival and so forth, everybody knew about it, even those people who didn't go to the meetings. But because that was the topic of conversation. Well, in this small town, whether it be Nazareth or uh, Capernaum or whatever, this is, we're Galilee now we're talking about, uh, everybody knew who Jesus was. Whether they believed in him or not is beside the point for the moment. Everybody knew who he was. And many of those same people became his followers because he was such a dynamic speaker. And then it was after they became a follower did they become an apostle. All right, And that is the way the church is still set up today. The church is run by the apostles' descendants that we call bishops. The word bishop comes again from a translation meaning shepherd and back all the way to the idea of of the word apostle, all right? The fact that we have a pope is indicative of Peter being chosen first in this story in chapter 5 and back in chapter 6. Again, he's named first. Whether or not he was the first one to be chosen or not, we have no idea, and it really doesn't make a lot of difference but he was elevated as the leader of the Twelve. And that is the way the church still exists. The Pope is the head bishop, and the bishops actually run the church, or govern the church. Just because we have cardinals in there, a cardinal is no different than any other bishop, except that he's got more work and got a little bit more recognition for it. Okay. But he can't, he doesn't have any greater privileges uh, or powers or whatever. So it is still the Pope and the bishops still govern the church today. Okay. No difference. Now you might say, well, what about a Monsignor? Well, the phrase and the term and the uh, elevation of priest to the level of Monsignor has been discontinued, and those who had that title uh, can keep them, and they wear a little purple stripe on their cassock if they wear a cassock, which most of them don't anymore, uh, but you don't find any new priest being elevated to the level of Monsignor that's sort of been done away with. Okay, so the church is governed by the Pope and the bishops. In Christ's time, after Christ died and went to, back to heaven and today. I want to go on. Is there any questions regarding the call of the apostles? Okay. Yes. Yeah. 39, it said in the other synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew was referred to as Levi, son of Elphus. Yeah. Is that the same one that was Father John? Uh, that could be. I don't know, uh, frankly, I don't know. <laughs> um, um, probably unlikely, yeah, unlikely. Um, you see, there, there were a lot of similar names throughout the Bible because of the culture. If you think about it and you read particularly um, the Gospel of, of John, and then you go to the Acts of the Apostles, you'll see three or four different Marys. You know, you have Mary, of course, the mother of, 
of Jesus. And then you have Mary Magdalene, and you have Mary, the sister of one of the characters, I forget. And there's a lot of Marys, you know, it gets a little confusing after a while. A lot of similar names. In fact, you have, you know, two Jameses here and two Simons. Yeah. So there's a lot of similarities. You've got to be careful of, of similar names. Okay. All right. Any other questions about the apostles? They were not people who just dropped everything uh, and went off and followed Jesus the first time they met him. No, that is not the way things normally happen. Okay. The other question that is always raised or generally raised when somebody talks about uh, the call of the apostles uh, is if Christ called you, you as an individual, and asked you if you would come and follow him, could and would you do it? Could you drop everything and follow him? That's a question I just have to leave out there. I'm not expecting an answer. But when you think about it in the story of the call of Levi, he didn't leave everything because he gave a banquet shortly thereafter. So he had his rather sumptuous house and perhaps servants and so forth. Uh, so he didn't leave everything. What it really means is putting Christ ahead of everything, not necessarily leaving everything behind and going off following Jesus around the countryside. No, it means putting Jesus and his message and his call to you as an individual ahead of everything else. And we are all asked to do that without exception. In other words, put Christ in the right priority. I really want to go on to the miracles. Uh, there are four miracles mentioned here, and they are important, but uh, the teachings that are in this section of chapters 5, 6, and 7 are really the most important parts here. Cleansing the leper. Cleansing the leopard is, uh, is the first one, uh, begins on page 35 here. Uh, how many of you were at St. Clair Saturday evening uh, for Mass? This was part of the readings, and Father McCarthy gave, I thought, a beautiful uh, homily on this very subject. Um, it was the reading for that particular day. Uh, beginning or, or two weeks from tomorrow, I mean a week from tomorrow, is the beginning of Lent. And so the readings of the Masses leading up to Lent are all about reconciliation and forgiveness of sin and so forth in, in different, under different contexts. What this is generally in there for is to compare the disease of leprosy with sin. Uh, but leprosy in this day and age uh, <clears throat> was a lot like the demon story that I talked to Anna about. Anything, any illness that was not understood, that was visible from the outside, uh, even a twitch, you know, or a, a psoriasis or um, sunburn, people didn't understand what that was all about and often called it leprosy, regardless of whether it was or not. And leprosy in those days was highly contagious and uncurable. It is not any longer. It is cured rather easily with the right kind of medication, but they didn't have that in those days. And it's not called leprosy any longer. It's called Hansen's disease, okay, because there is a medical cure for it, which was discovered by a Swedish uh, physicist named Hansen. Okay. But the cure of the leopard is interesting in a way because they don't use the word cure. They call it cleansing. 
And as Father McCarthy mentioned last Saturday, and I assume he did on Sunday also, the significance of that is that in this day and age, in this culture, anyone that was deemed to have leprosy, whether it really was or not, uh, they were ostracized because Moses decreed that anyone that had contagious disease or uh, thought to be a contagious disease had to be removed from the community so as to not contaminate um, any of the community. All right, so they had to be removed. Uh, they could not live with their families. They could not work. They could not do anything. They had to be removed. And then over a period of time between Moses' time and Jesus' time, that took on a religious tone that they were being punished by God with this horrible disease. And then it further went into the fact that they were unclean. And unclean took a, a much uh, broader um, understanding than we have today. Unclean was just not dirty, uh, you know, from mud or rain splatter or whatever. Unclean meant unclean totally, inside and out. And so when the leper asked to be cleansed, he wanted to be not only healed, but he wanted the stigma of this disease that he had, or this problem, whatever it might be, to be removed so that he could then re-enter society. And Jesus, having compassion with this man, um, partly because he, un Jesus understood that this was, this kind of disease was far out, uh, far exaggerated beyond anything that was reasonable. And these people were being ostracized sometimes for no good reason. Um, felt compassion. Now, in all of these miracles, there are two primary and sometimes three primary ingredients in all of the miracles all the way through all of the Gospels. There are two or three primary ingredients. Can anyone tell me what they are? Hmm? Anyone want to venture a guess? Connie? No, no, no. The faith. Faith. Every miracle requires faith on the part of the individual. If you don't believe that Jesus can do it, he's not going to do it. You've got to believe that God not only can, but will heal you or give you whatever it is you're asking. And I'm talking about not only these four individual miracles that are mentioned here, but today, when you pray for something, you've got to have faith in the one to whom you are praying. And that is why you pray to God. Sometimes you go through Mary or one of the saints, but ultimately your prayer is directed to God because he's the only one that can work miracles or grant special favors. So you need to have faith. The other primary ingredient that is evident in all of these, it has got to be part of God's will for you. If it isn't, you know, you could pray till now until doomsday to win that $76 million lottery, and that's not going to happen, particularly because somebody else wanted it. But even before, okay? Uh, because if that is not part of God's will for you, it's never going to happen. So you got to think about what you're praying for, or sometimes if you are praying for somebody else. Oh, Lord, would you please heal my grandmother? 
She's only 92 and she wants to go roller skating. <laughs> you know, you got to be practical. Those are the two most important things. And there's sometimes a few other things. It's always got to be for the benefit of one or more recipients. Jesus never worked a miracle for his own benefit. Never. In any of the Gospels. He never worked a miracle for his own personal benefit. He always worked it for the benefit of someone else. Sometimes it was only for teaching purposes. All right. For example, at one point in time, he curses the fig tree. But it was to teach a lesson that a tree that represents itself as a fruit tree but does not bear fruit does not deserve to live. That was the message in that particular case. All right. And this particular tree was supposed to have had fruit on it at a given time of the year and didn't. And he likened that in his explanation to those who have everything given to them and do not use it for the benefit of others. They hoard it to themselves or they don't produce at all. And they don't have the right to continue. Any questions about the miracles? There's four of them. Um, you have the healing of the paralytic. One of the statements in the healing of the paralytic, this is the, the guy that was dropped down through the roof uh, by his friends because the home that Jesus was staying at uh, was so crowded that they couldn't get in uh, to the door. So what they do is they went up on the roof and these homes were made... <coughs> with terraces on the roof and the tiles could be taken off to in the summer to uh, provide, you know, their form of air conditioning, you might say. And so they took the tiles and opened the roof up and dropped the, the guy down on ropes, of course, uh, in front of Jesus while he was preaching and teaching. And Jesus looks at him and, <clears throat> and says, your sins are forgiven. And everybody says, well, the poor guy is is a paralytic and he's in here and he'd like a little bit more than sins be forgiven and besides who can forgive sins but God himself and this is the thoughts of the Pharisees and of course Jesus said you're right who can give forgive sins but God himself but that you may know that the son of man has the power to forgive sin he tells the paralytic rise pick up your mat and go home and of course the the man does that. Okay. So we can take that. Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to rise from your mat from which you've been paralyzed or on which you've been paralyzed for God knows how long and go home? Which is easier for God to say? They're both equally easy because God can do that. Right? So we can take that and bring it down to our day, which is easier to turn water into wine, as Jesus did at the marriage feast of Cana, or to take wine and turn it into his blood and bread into his body, which is easier? Same thing. Which is more important? The flesh and the blood of Jesus himself is more important to us. But there's no difference for God. The difference is for us. And that's the way it is intended. The raising of the widow of names' son. We have three different stories in the four Gospels about Jesus restoring people to life. The widow of 
the, the son of the widow of, of Nain, right here in this story. You have Lazarus, and then you have the daughter of uh, a friend later on. You also have some stories that relate closely to it. For example, the centurion's son, he's called a slave in, uh, in Luke, but he's called a son in Matthew. But remember, children at this, in this culture, at this time period, were considered almost equal to slaves. Not in the way they were treated, but for legal purposes. Children had virtually no say-so, had no legal authority whatsoever until they were of age, which came about at the age of 30. We say 21 in our culture today, and for some things it's 18, but in this culture, in this time period, a legal age didn't begin until age of 30. Okay, And incidentally, that's why we feel that Jesus was about 30 years old when he began to teach, because a person who wasn't 30 years old would not have been taken seriously for the same reason. All right. I want to get into some of the stories of uh, on the teachings. Uh, the fasting, feasting and fasting, which begins on uh, page 40, yes. Now, fasting was something that was part of Jewish culture and Jewish beliefs long before Christ. Christ did not establish fasting, uh, but it was something that was um, taken seriously by some people and totally ignored by others, and they haven't changed even today. Catholics are, are just as notorious for doing that as everyone else is. Uh, the fact is that fasting is still a requirement for all of us for at various time periods and really throughout our lives. It's not talked about as much, but it still exists as a requirement. The disciples of John, they were questioning Jesus about this. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and the disciples of the Pharisees do the same. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus answered them, Can you make the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. Uh, here's the more important part. <clears throat> then they will fast in those days, and he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth, really, from a new cloak to patch an old one. Otherwise, he will tear the new, and the piece from it will not match the old cloak. Or when it's washed, the new piece will shrink differently than the rest of the cloak. Likewise, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. You've heard this over and over, but very few people seem to understand it. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be ruined. Rather, new wine must be poured into fresh wineskins. And no one who has been drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. Now, he's not talking really about wine or skins. What he's talking about is the message that he is trying to teach. The words of Christ are like new wine. And when they fall on a guy or a, a person, I should say, who will not open their mind and change their hearts, then it's like new wine being poured into old wineskin. Okay? So, New wine requires an open mind, a person willing to change and update their thinking. One of the reasons that I promoted last in our last session, last uh, October, November, was primarily for people who hadn't 
studied the Bible since they were little children in school. Because many people left, say, elementary school, particularly if they went to Catholic schools, left the elementary school, and then through high school and college and later on, never really updated their faith. So they had sort of a, a childlike, not childish, but a childlike understanding of their faith. And it was important that they bring their faith up to date. And this is the same kind of story. This is a way that we are trying to show it today. When the word of Christ fell on the Jewish people who were so steeped in the thousand or fifteen hundred year old Mosaic law, they had a difficult time rethinking the whole process. And Jesus says, you've got to do that. You've got to open your minds and rethink the process. And that is why he, at another point in the Gospels, takes the whole Mosaic law and boils it down from 613 laws to two. Love of God and love of neighbor. And that was difficult for the Jewish people to accept because they were going so much by living by these laws. You couldn't do this and you couldn't do that. You couldn't light a fire to cook on sun or on the Sabbath and you couldn't walk from a distance further than from your home to the synagogue uh, because those were all against the laws. Well, Jesus said, the laws have gotten too burdensome. And therefore, let's do it this way. Love of God and love of neighbor. And as St. Paul tells us in the book of Romans, if you follow that, then you have fulfilled the law. You understand this wineskin story now a little better, hopefully. I was waiting for you to say that, Anna. <laughs> no one who has been drinking old wine desires new when he says the old is dead. Because he doesn't want to change. Uh-huh. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's easy for, you know, as the saying goes, it's easy for you to say. Uh, you know, it is not easy for us to accept all of Christ's teachings. It requires effort. But if you're sincere, you'll open up your mind and your heart. And even in wine tasting, there are wines that are bottled in, in, for example, Beaujolais, is bottled in the springtime, and within three months it's ready to drink. If you let it go too long, it becomes vinegar. Okay, but most wines, ferrital wines, yes, they age and are better, you know, as they get older, but not all of them. All right, let's let's move on because I want to really get to some of these other. The debate on the Sabbath. (laughs) If you turn over to page 42. This is a whole story about working and doing things on the Sabbath. What is allowed and what is not allowed. This is an argument that goes way back to the time of Moses. All right, And it became so burdensome for the Jewish people at the time of Christ. And so Christ is trying to give them a, out a way of looking at it, that makes a little more sense. Those things that are unnecessary to be done on a Sabbath or a Sunday should not be done. The Sunday should be a day of rest for the body because if you work seven days a week, 
week after week after week, month after month, and so forth and so on, eventually the body breaks down and is not good for anything, really. After a while, you could care less. I remember during the war, the Second World War, when many people had to work day after day after day, and they were making great money, but they said, I could care less because I don't have the time nor the energy to spend it. Uh, and God realized that. The whole thing goes back to the days of creation when God rested on the sixth or the seventh day, rested from the acts of creation. But remember, creation goes on and on and on. Creation did not end after that sixth day. Babies are born and people die and volcanoes create new mountains and new islands and creation constantly is going on all the time. So creation didn't end. But that was the point that was being made and we were supposed to, or, or Moses insisted, that the ancient Hebrew or Israelite people would rest in honor of that seventh day that God rested. Well, there were certain things that you can't avoid. People die, or born, or people are born and people die on Sunday. They have no timetable for that, okay? And there's other things that have to go on. Nurses and doctors and policemen and firemen and so forth have to work on the Sabbath. So what do they do? They take another day during the week as best they can and observe that in place. But most of them won't do it anyway. So, But Jesus says here on page 42, the, Sabbath, uh, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And if we go over to the Gospel of Mark chapter 2, it's a little clearer when Mark says in under the same story, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And I think that is the real point of both of these stories, is that God made the Sabbath for man to do something differently than his normal six days of work, or five days, or whatever it may be. But most of all, he should give a portion of that time to God in the form of worship and prayer and thanksgiving. But if you go over to uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 27, uh, he says, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And I think, excuse me, I think that sums up uh, that story rather well. Okay. Let's take the next one, the Sermon on the Plains. The Plain. The Plain, the Plain. <clears throat> this is the equivalent of the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 except that this is just the first part of that, which is in Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. They are worded a little differently here, and I think this is a good example of where Luke probably got them from somebody else who heard them from Jesus in a different location than when Matthew heard them from Jesus in another location. But they are essentially the same kind of thing. The idea of the Sermon on the Plain and the love of enemies, and we can go over to a few other judging others and a tree by its fruit, and the two foundations all can be sort of summed up under a title of what is discipleship? Please kind of remember that, the word discipleship. It is really a person who believes and in and follows Christ as closely as he can and still remain 
in the world, but not of the world. Discipleship. Let's see how that all kind of bears fruit here. When a disciple does what God has asked him to do, in other words, he has found what his role is in God's plan of salvation. We had talked extensively last week about God's plan of salvation. We all have a role in God's plan, all right? We talked about the, the partners uh, that God chose throughout history to help implement this plan of salvation. But in today's world, we all have a part to play. We all have a role. We all have something that we can give to others of ourselves, And that is called discipleship. And when you follow that, according to what God has asked of you, then these beatitudes fall into place. Blessed are those who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. And in Mark, Matthew's gospel, it is said, blessed are the poor in spirit, which opens up to a broader field. He's not talking about necessarily people who are economically or financially poor. He can be talking about people who have given up the attachment to money and wealth and position and title. They still have it, but they're giving up the attachment to it and they're going out and working in the vineyard of the Lord. Blessed are those who are hungry, for you will be satisfied. Well, hunger can be from a variety of things, not only a hunger from food, but a hunger from company, a hunger for perhaps privacy in order to pray. Uh, there's many kinds of hunger. So you're not limited to the obvious. Blessed are you who are weeping, for you will laugh. In, Mar in Matthew's Gospel, it is talking about blessed are you who mourn, M-O-U-R-N, okay? And mourning means keeping company with those who are in sorrow or who have just lost a loved one or mourning about maybe a relative who is leading a very sinful life. And all you can do is to pray for them because there's nothing you can do personally to change their way of life. So you see, each one of these has, is like a diamond in a way. It has many facets to look at. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude and insult you and denounce your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Well, how many, I, I bet everyone in here has at least heard, heard at least one case of somebody who was ostracized from their own family for becoming a Catholic when they were maybe a Jew or uh, another Christian faith and they converted to Catholicism. Uh, that happens quite often when you get people who convert from um, a non-Christian faith into a Christian or a Catholic faith. Um, they are put out of their families, particularly uh, in a Jewish person that embraces the Catholic or a Christian faith. They are totally cut off as if they were dead. All right. So that is what is meant in today's world by this particular one. <clears throat> Those who hate you and when they exclude and insult you or denounce your name as evil on account of Jesus Christ. Rejoice and leap for joy on that day. Behold, your reward will be great in heaven. And that's what all of these beatitudes are. They're promises of rewards in the form of peace and 
the presence of God, not in this world necessarily, but in heaven. I want to move on quickly here. Love of enemies. I gave you, and I hope you all got a copy of this little diagram. I use this quite often. When we talk about biblical love, you hear the term love frequently, and it is used um, probably among the ten most used words in all of the Bible. The word love. Love is a multifaceted term. It does not mean affection. It can include affection, but it is not centered on the word affection. Most people think when they think of love, they either think of sex, which just has nothing to do with, uh, or they think of being lovey-dovey and, you know, Valentine's Day and all of that stuff. That is not what the term love means in a biblical sense. The most important ingredient in love in this particular sense is the word respect. Respect for the dignity of another person, whether he be a neighbor of, or uh, an enemy or totally unknown. He or she deserves the respect of a human being. And then it goes on from there. Compassion, forgiveness, integrity in dealing with these people, humility, charity, understanding, those are forms of love. And so when any of those words are used, you are fulfilling the law of love, love of God and love of neighbor. It does not mean affection. It can include affection, but in a limited sense. It can include uh, sex also as a form of marital love only. So when you read Love of Enemies, people say, well, gee, you know, that doesn't sound quite right. But if we all think back about the horrible stories and scenes that we saw at the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq a year or two ago with some of the horrible scenes and some of the tragic stories that we heard about that, that all derives from the fact that the American people who were the guards at that prison did not exercise love and respect for those prisoners. And, you know, there was one scene where a female guard was dragging somebody by a rope like a dog. And, you know, it, they were just horrible, horrible scenes. I don't see how any person, American military or whatever, uh, could do those kinds of things. They are totally sinful um, beyond description. And that is what God is meaning here. An enemy can be an enemy if you have the right reason, but you still have to respect the dignity of the person. And that's not always easy to do, I admit, but that is what is required. Judging others still goes the same way. That's one thing that we're all kind of guilty of. We love to gossip and we love to talk about other people. And so don't say, well, not me, uh, because we're all guilty of that. It's part of nature, but we have to guard against it. Uh, gossip can be very damaging. And not only to the parties involved, uh, but upon hearsay and repeating of gossip, it can just uh, exasperate the whole situation. So we have to be extremely careful about that. 
A tree is known by its fruit. We talked slightly about uh, this earlier. Um, a tree is recognized by the fruit, and if it's a, a bad tree, if it produces bad fruit, well, it doesn't deserve to stay there. Uh, it should be cut down. Let's go on to the two foundations. This is important because of what it really says uh, at the end. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I command? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me and listens to my words and acts on them. Underline the word, and acts on them. That one, we're on the top of page 47. <clears throat> That one is like a person building a house who dug deeply and laid the foundation on rock. And when the flood came, the river burst against the house but could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who listens and does not act is like a person who builds a house on the ground without a foundation or upon sand. When the river burst against it, it collapses at once and was completely destroyed. In uh, in Matthew and Mark's gospel, there's a little bit more to this story than that. The idea of Lord, Lord. What Christ is mentioning here is that those people who say, oh, I'm a Catholic. I go to Mass Christmas and Easter maybe, but I'm a Catholic. Oh, yes. Well, do you drop anything into the basket, even on Christmas and Easter? Well, yeah, sometimes I have changed my pocket, you know. Um, what about um, judging others? Oh, well, don't we all do that? You see, what Christ is talking about here are the people who say one thing and do another. They do not follow through. If you are a Christian or a Catholic Christian, you must live by what Christ has told us we must live by. You cannot say one thing that you are a Christian and then act in a way that is contrary to the teachings of Christ. And yet we see a lot of that in public life. I won't go into the names because you all are, I'm sure, have somebody come to name or mind right away. But that is the essence here. If you claim to be a Christian, you must live that way. It is not something that you put on on Sundays and you go to church and look like all sweetness and light. And then you come out of I, have to, I really have to laugh at this one. Somebody was telling me that they were coming out of church, and you know how everybody at, at our St. Clair here, excuse the St. Rose people, they don't do that, of course. Uh, but at St. Clair, everybody crowds around that fountain on the way out, trying to get their hand in there, you see. And this man was telling me that he was accidentally sort of knocked off his balance, and he stepped back, and he stepped on somebody's toe and bumped into her. And she just let out the foul language and all, right there in church, you know. And he couldn't get over it. You know, here she's not even out of church yet, and she's doing the, the wrong thing already. Um, well, those things do happen, but you see, that kind of person is kind of living a dream world on Sunday and then living the real world the rest of the week. And maybe not even just on Sunday, you know, just while the Mass is going on. The moment the Mass is over with, up, back to the old way, you know. Uh, you can't do that. So the whole objective of Christ and 
His teachings, all of these teachings, is to live according to the way he has asked us to live. Love of God and love of neighbor. Love of neighbor, and I don't mean just next door neighbor, because my next door neighbor is sitting right here. But uh, and I do love you, Marvin. <laughs> but the idea is neighbor again is one of those words used in the biblical context to mean anyone that you are interacting with, anyone that you deal with, whether it be for the moment or on a regular basis. You treat that person with respect. It doesn't mean that you have to be lovey-dovey, uh, but it means that you have to treat them with respect as if Christ was right there with you, in front of you at the moment. Now, Jose asked a question, and I want to be sure we get to it, and this is in the story of John the Baptist. Okay? We go over to page 51, or 50, really. It starts on 50. It says, the messengers from John. And a lot of people have asked me about this. It says, two disciples, actually it's mentioned in Mark and Matthew, that two disciples uh, of John went to Jesus. <laughs> and said to Jesus, are you the one, see John is in prison at this time, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? The phrase, are you the one the one who is to come, comes from uh, the book of Deuteronomy, because in Deuteronomy, Moses predicts that there will be a prophet like him, quote-unquote, prophet like me, uh, who will come and lead my people into the new promised land. And so down throughout history, the Jewish people always were looking for this one who is to come. And that's where the phrase comes from. Okay, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Remember, even though John knew a little bit about Christ, probably didn't know him well, experienced his baptism and the unique circumstances there, he probably expected some great thing to happen from or through Jesus and probably got tired of waiting. It could have been a, a year, a year and a half, almost two years from the baptism until this incident. We don't know exactly what the time is, but John probably was waiting for something to happen. Okay, and nothing spectacular was happening yet from Jesus in the way that was expected in the way of, of a Messiah coming to relieve them from the Romans. And so he sends these uh, disciples to ask him. So, and Jesus, instead of saying, yes, I am, he says, um <clears throat> uh, uh, let's see, where am I? I want, to, I want to jump ahead, huh? Okay. And he said to them in reply, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind regain their sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news proclaimed to them. And blessed is the one who takes no offense in me. So, he didn't say, yes, I am, you know, here I am. Uh, he said, look what I've done. Look what I've been doing. Listen to what I've been preaching. Is that not enough for you? And so the disciples go back to John. And then after they left, <laughs> Jesus says, what did you go out to see? What should you go out to the desert? He's talking about his disciples, not to John's disciples, his own disciples. What did you go out in the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Then what did you go out to see? Someone dressed in fine garments? For those who dress luxuriously and live sumptuously are found in royal palaces, not out in the desert like John was wearing camel skin and looking a little wild. Then what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes. 
Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. For this is the one about whom scripture says, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare, excuse me, he will prepare your way before you. Part of that comes from the prophet Malachi, and part of it is in reference back to the prophet Isaiah. When Isaiah mentioned it, he's referring to the way that kings are uh, treated when they go out to visit some of their territories. They always send people out ahead to make sure that the roads are clean and smooth and their potholes are filled in and there's no uh, obstructions and so forth. And then the king comes along. And John is likened to one of these people who go out and prepares the way. So he says, I tell you, among those born of woman, no one is greater than John. Yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now that was Jose's question. What does that mean, right? How many of you found an answer? How many of you found an answer? Yes, I will, but wait a minute. The first part, if you think about it, the first part of that is strictly earthbound, right? A man, no man born of a woman is greater than John the Baptist. But the second part is spiritual. But he who was born into the kingdom of God is greater. Now the, well, in a way, yeah, all right. You see, everybody is born of a woman, are we not? Okay. But John, if you take it just at that level, was considered by Christ the greatest. You know, like Muhammad Ali, I'm the greatest. But John did not live beyond, or, or let's put it this way, John was beheaded before Christ died, before Christ died on the cross. And therefore, he never had the opportunity to receive the body and blood of Christ and be baptized into the Christian faith. You know, he baptized a lot of people under the old premise of Jewish repentance. But he was probably never baptized under the new terms uh, laid down by Christ in the church and had the opportunity to receive the body and blood of Christ as we all have an opportunity to do today. And so what Jesus is not putting John the Baptist down. What he's saying is that a true Christian who lives by the teachings of Christ can rise to the level greater than John the Baptist because he has Christ living within him. Anna has a question. I can see that on her face. Well, that's in true of the apostles. Yes, but John was the Baptist was not an apostle. No, no, I know. And he died long before. Yes. Yes, and the apostles died long afterwards, but even they didn't receive the body and blood of Christ. Yes, they did. At the Last Supper. Oh, the Last Supper. I apologize. I was thinking I wasn't you were, you were thinking of a mass, probably. Yes, sir. I was thinking the kingdom of God is being those who are dead and in God's presence. And you brought it back here on earth. You bet. You bet. It's references of the kingdom of God being in communion. Well, that's part of it. The kingdom of God begins when you accept Christ personally. And some people, even they, even Catholics or Christians, never get to that point. 
of really accepting him in your mind and in your heart as a personal. See, kingdom and Lord go together. The word Lord means ruler. Ruler in a, like a political sense. Okay? But in this, when we change it a little bit to being in a spiritual sense, we mean ruler over our mind, our heart, and our life. And that is when the kingdom of God begins here on earth at your acceptance of Jesus Christ. Not sometime down the road. Great. Great. We assume so, but we don't know. But it says, uh, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Now, I don't understand that in the way it's explained in the discussion. Well, he, he's, he's, saying, he's traditionally, or in essence, he's saying, yes, I am. See what I've been doing? Who else can do that? Yes. All right. And the last one, which most people don't pick up on, the poor have the good news preached to them. You see, in this culture, the poor were always ostracized because they were sinners. Jesus does the opposite. He goes after the sinners primarily. That's one of his biggest concerns, is to bring them into the fold. Because no one else would. It's important.